It's Monday the 4th of April 2022. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this past week, why it happened and why we should care. My guest this week is Ingun Laura Kristjánsdóttir, a journalist with the Fréttablöðið newspaper. Welcome to you. Thank you very much. Uh, in the news this week, we learnt that the new national financial plan for 2023 to 2027 anticipates the economy running with a deficit until 2027. Mm-hmm. Despite this, opposition parties claim that the plan does not do enough for those most vulnerable to financial change, including high housing costs and inflation. Mm-hmm. At least one serious healthcare incident is reported to the Directorate of Health each week, which is a similar proportion to many other countries, but many doctors and patients feel more could be done to better respond to such mistakes and to learn from them. In other medical news, Iceland last week passed the unwelcome milestone of 100 deaths related to COVID-19 since the pandemic began. The number of Ukrainian refugees coming to Iceland has been somewhat higher than forecast so far, with the response continuing to evolve and adapt. For example, when dozens of people were moved this weekend from temporary accommodation at Ausbru to Hotel Saga in Reykjavik because the noise of civil and military aviation at Keplavik Airport was petrifying some of the children. The head of the refugee reception operation has also put out a call for jobs for those refugees who want to work. The unusual and controversial delay to citizenship applications through Althingi could end soon, as Parliament has now received the necessary paperwork it was expecting in December from the Directorate of Immigration. The Straito bus company is cutting back on some services as a response to financial restraints, largely, largely tracking back to the pandemic assembly restrictions. But with transport emissions near the top of the political agenda today, what sort of message does this send? And finally, a particularly wet March and strong start to the spring melt is seeing hydro reservoirs filling up from crisis levels and Landsvirkin relieving the restrictions it has placed on electricity supplies to heavy industrial users. Where would you like to begin? (laughs) Well, um, I've been watching a lot of uh, news from Ukraine, so we could maybe start there. Mm. I think that's a really... um, uh, important point of where uh, the refugees can stay in Iceland. You know, as you were saying, you know, children that are suffering from PTSD were staying in Keplavik and obviously there's a lot of traffic there, lots of noises that are scaring them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I found interesting that they were moving them to Hotel Saga is that that's just the hotel that's next to the, the other airport in Reykjavik. Yeah. <laughs> the, the same thing struck me as well. I mean, it's mostly different types of aircraft using that. Mm-hmm. Maybe the propeller planes are less scary. I don't know. But yeah, mm-hmm. that was the first thing I thought too. But yeah, definitely yeah. when we're looking at Keplavik, I think that's you know a very difficult place to, uh, to house the refugees because we know that there will be more traffic. I remember speaking to uh, Katrin Jakobsdóttir, the prime minister, about... What does this mean for Iceland since, you know, we are part of NATO, that that is uh, all of the NATO nations are responding to the the war in Ukraine. Mm. And she said that what we can uh, expect is more traffic, um, perhaps more um, military presence in Iceland. And if that is going to be the case for the next weeks and months, then we need to find... I feel like we need to find a better way to make refugees feel safe when they come to Iceland, since most of the military presence will be around the airport where they are all coming to Iceland. This is their first experience in the country. Yeah. And of course, Ausbru is itself 
part of the old military mm-hmm. base. And yes, the, the old camps. Yeah. And so you have this uh, immediate connection to war and uh, army. And these people that have been traveling, they have been walking for for maybe hundreds of kilometers. They finally get their air, uh, airplane ticket and they come to Iceland. And that's the, the first thing they see. Now, look at it from the other side, being a little bit positive about this. Mm. Um, there's lots of space and housing at Ausbru. Mm-hmm, it's kind true. of logical to put people there when they first arrive. But then we saw this, we, people saw this problem and how scared some of the children were and mm-hmm. reacted quickly. Yes. And that's that's good. I, I think that was definitely uh, a good response, you know, listening to them and making sure that they feel the most comfortable. Mm. Um, but yeah we're, yeah, we're getting more quite uh, terrifying news from Ukraine. We are seeing more evidence of civilian killings, uh, ma- like shallow graves of families. I mean, it's it's absolutely horrendous watching this. And uh, Ukraine is now calling for full embargo on uh, Russian oil and gas. Mm. Now, we have been seeing some response. I know that, uh, you know, in the US, they are they are uh, c- cutting it out uh, almost completely. But Europe is still reliant on uh, Russian gas uh, specifically. And they will be changing this. But I feel like this is... Uh, uh, a long-term change that we need to be looking at. How are we? How are the European nations going to be more, uh, well, reliant on more more renewable sources and not getting the gas all the way from from Russia? Mm. I think this is going to be one of the bigger conversations in the future. We should focus back on Iceland, but on that very point, I have been thinking if Europe is putting so much effort into divesting away from Russian gas and oil, Mm. and it's going to take years to do, and it's going to happen, Mm. what does Putin have to lose by carrying on the war now? Because this decision has been made, Mm. and that's possibly working against the sanctions regime, because it's like... We this is you know this is going to happen, so Russian economic power mm-hmm. is probably at its peak and mm-hmm. is going to decline. That doesn't necessarily encourage him to stop the war now, does it? Oh, perhaps not. That's a, re- a quite an interesting point. He has been um, pushing for uh, the nations to pay in in rubles, mm. and he had that threat of of cutting off the gas. But he still has he still has that power for the next few years because. We, the Europeans are so reliant. Yeah, it I was mean, quite an easy decision for the US and Canada to take. Yes, they can rely on their own sources, and in some way we can too in Iceland. Although we are still importing quite a bit of oil uh, into our country, even though we have many renewable sources. No, that's resources. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> um, okay. Uh, jobs for refugees. Mm-hmm. This is um, something that uh, Gilvi Thor Thorstedson has put out a special call for. Do we have any indication of what sort of proportion of the refugees coming will want to take jobs here? Oh, I can imagine uh, quite a lot of people want to give back. Just I've been ha- doing a few interviews with U- Ukrainian refugees. Uh, obviously, the majority are uh, young women mm. and then some older men that did not have to uh, go into the military. And I feel like every single person that I've spoken to, they, you know, they, they show um, uh, that they, you know, they would love to 
give back. They say, you know, we, we want to work, we want to help. You know, they're still processing trauma. So I was quite, you know, it, it, was, it was quite beautiful of seeing them straight away going, we want to help the society that are taking us in. As I was speaking to um, this one woman who uh, she uh, does a lot of like hand, like crafting uh, art with wool. And she wants to, you know, she's interested in holding seminars of teaching Icelandic artists how to make wool. So we're not just getting people that want to, you know, uh, do you know, like basic manual labor. We have artists. We have people that uh, they want to give back to society in a different way as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And one way of people dealing with trauma is is, is commonly known is to, you know, put your mind under something else. Yes, getting into a routine, I think, really helps people. And as soon as people can start uh, sort of getting into a routine, because I can't imagine that you can process through the trauma straight away because the war is ongoing. They are continuously afraid for your loved ones in your in your home country. Yeah. And perhaps you just need, uh, yes, a, a moment of peace through some kind of routine. And I think that Iceland should do, you know, everything they can to help people get into a, a sort of stable routine to be able to, yes, find that ease, yeah. if possible. And the more we are all being emotionally affected by some of the things we're seeing, mm-hmm. especially over the last three or four days, mm-hmm. um, it's ten, hundred times worse for for the refugees. Gosh, I can't even imagine yeah. going through this and being so far away from your home, you know, being in a place that perhaps you feel safe, but always constantly at the back of your head is the war. You know, and that all doesn't... the people that you know who are not safe. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, uh, you know, many of people still staying in contact, you know, with their loved ones that are spread all over the world. So some people don't just all come together to Iceland. You know, they have loved ones who are maybe in Norway or, uh, you know, maybe in southern parts of, of Europe. And, you know, it's this is the tragedy of war. It splits up families. Yes. Uh, on that note, uh, unless you've got anything else to add, we should maybe move on to a different topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else caught your eye or your ear? <laughs> um, well, if we talk about the 183 billion kroner deficit, uh, Bert Levy at the, the Pirate Party said, uh, you know, we are going to ha- be having trouble with the health, health sector uh, in the future if we are not putting more money into it. And I saw that Kristrún Frostadóttir uh, was talking about yeah, how the inflation will affect marginalised group. Uh, Again, I think we are going to be seeing the effect on our economy. Uh, you know, it's directly uh, being impacted by the war. You know, by you know, we have uh, food is going to uh, get <laughs> pricier. Obviously, uh, gasoline is is going through the roof, uh, and. It's 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 strange seeing this effect on our country because I feel like uh, it's been so many years since I felt like we've felt that direct impact of a war in mm. Europe having effect on our economy. But obviously we are still trying to heal from the coronavirus, uh, how that impacted jobs and the, the job sector in Iceland. Yeah. 
just to I mean obviously the inflation and the prices going up it affects everybody and it mm -hmm. does affect the national budget the national purse um, but yeah a, a majority of the effects on the national budget are probably still from COVID mm -hmm. and the amount of money that was spent then um, and we're running at a deficit now and for the coming years as well mm -hmm. because the government doesn't want to necessarily cut off all of the aid straight away no so with that in mind, um, what more would the opposition parties like to be done? Because well, the support is still being paid, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously they have, uh, they're always going to have uh, something to comment on. What I actually found quite positive uh, in, the, in the financial plan for the next year is um, the focus on um, sort of uh, new research and uh, like uh, new initiatives, uh, which... You know, hopefully, we'll be able to create more jobs, getting into some type of stability. Uh, but I think the one of the main concerns of the opposition is how we are not meeting the needs of of the health sector specifically. And you know, these are the people that have been giving everything to to keep our society alive these are you know the the nurses and the doctors who have been working constantly who are who are probably dealing with PTSD from uh, from the uh, coronavirus uh, the last two years and yeah I think it's I think it's a, a disappointment that the, there's not more of a boost but as you said it's almost like we're still um, in this sort of response. Mm. to the pandemic. I feel like we are still in some sort of a fixing response instead of uh, instead of boosting, instead of boosting it for the future. Yeah. It's a tough one. Um, I wouldn't want to be in government necessarily. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the health front, you mentioned healthcare. Um, maybe we should talk about that because that's mm -hmm. been very much in the news for this past week. Um, oh, yeah. Again, because it was sort of broken open by Quakers, mm -hmm. um, the number of mistakes that are made, serious mistakes that can damage the health or long-term well-being or even kill uh, certain patients, they happen in every country's health service. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily a worse problem here than it is elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But the accusations are that we're not learning enough mm. from these. Yes. I mean, it, it's been... Gosh, it's just been so difficult hearing these stories and reading about these stories and some of them have been quite detailed oh yes mm. quite quite detailed and uh, I'm quite familiar um, with this sector my mother she is a physiotherapist and she focuses on um, uh, like post uh, like birth and natal care about helping women um, you know get back uh, their their body their, their pelvic area because you know birth can be very traumatic to the bodies and you need time to heal and you need uh, therapy you need long time therapy but you you know you can get there but seeing these stories about mistakes being made and women not being listened to I feel like this is just a part of a bigger discussion of, of women not being listened to in uh, health mm. about their bodies. I have been seeing these stories for years of women going uh, to uh, the, the the you know public clinics and they are not taken seriously. They are not 
listen to when they know their body. And this is something that's, it's been a problem for a long time. And I've, you know, I've always wondered, you know, what is, what, what is the root of this? Is this something that we are not tackling um, at the university level? Where does this start? Is this a part of a bigger, um, uh, this, this underlying uh, misogyny, perhaps? But it's just, it, it angers me hearing these stories of, yeah. You know, like where we are not trusting women with you, knowing their own bodies. Has there been any research that you know of that indicates which direction that fault, that blame lies? Is it is it primarily older male doctors that are... No, not necessarily. It doesn't, because misogyny isn't just something that you find in in men. It, it is underlying in, in everyone. Uh, and it's not just primarily male doctors or, or nurses who are who are at fault. I think this is a, you know, a larger societal problem. And when you have, you know, traumatic stories like this of women not being able to walk because mistakes were made and they were not being listened to, it just really um, emphasizes the need to have this discussion about mm. <laughs> taking women seriously, giving women their voices. Now, the chair of the National Doctors Association wants to set up a special, I think, uh, an advisory council mm. that would take all of these cases in and discuss them and make a report of lessons to be learned and procedures to change. Mm -hmm. uh, sounds sensible, doesn't it? Yeah, very sensible and, and quite happy that the response was you know, immediate. But to be fair, every t every single time we have uh, a crisis like this, a, a boom of stories, we are always setting up um, councils and, and, and getting, you know, new research. We are, we are uh, you know, putting up a, re a response group. And I find I hear <laughs> far more of putting out fires and responding instead of tackling this before we have a crisis. And I think that's a, a big problem because it's not like we don't know of these. We know of these stories. We talk about them, you know, amongst our, ourselves in the in the society. So why are we waiting for uh, the, these things to happen? I think that's that's something that uh, we see quite a lot in journalism of, of you know, we have these... Uh, floods of, of quite horrific stories and then we, we often find out that people in high high places in our society knew of these problems but did not want to do anything about it because it wasn't a, a big discussion in the media mm. and I find that, that quite frustrating to be honest it, On that specific regard it reminds me a little bit of the housing for um, migrant workers issue Oh yes um, people living in industrial buildings and maybe mm -hmm. not having the fire protections. That was a similar story that went on for years. Oh, it's yes. still going on. Oh, oh yes, uh, completely. It, it's, it started, uh, it really, we started to hear these stories right from uh, the big uh, boom in, in the traveling industry. When we started having, you know, more people visiting Iceland, more people moving to Iceland, that's when we started hearing the stories. And this was uh, you know, more than a, more than a decade ago, maybe twenty years ago, that we started hearing about this, and 
you know, I've I've been sitting in a in a few court cases uh, about housing problems, and it's devastating. You you know these these people taking advantage of foreign workers, pushing them all into tiny tiny little houses where they are not um, uh, there are not proper safety regulations, mm. and it's it's quite difficult to tackle this. Uh, like legally, uh, and and I feel like it's it's still going to be a problem tackling this for the next few years, and and we keep hearing more and more stories. Yeah. Uh, I I just keep thinking about Prajaborgastiur um, uh, with the, with the fire, which was just uh, this horrible case of you know they had like twenty people living there. There were I think thirteen people in the house when the when the fire started and. And and now we are still there are still ongoing court cases uh, about this, and now the the former residents are, you know, seeking legal actions against the owner of the house. Yeah, yeah, that was what should at least have been the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Um, mm. Big change should have come, but it's that, like you're saying about these big national discussions. That was a scandal. Everyone was talking about it. Mm-hmm. There was endless coverage, and I'm not entirely certain what's how much has happened since mm-hmm. and maybe that's the situation we're going to be in now with uh, medical mistakes oh i think so yeah i think uh, you know there's there's always a lot of media coverage at the beginning and then there's immediate response but it's still necessary to to keep pushing the authorities to 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 ask and and demand change because it doesn't just stop after the media coverage. This it needs to, uh, the conversation needs to continue in order to have proper change. It's natural that media coverage is going to die down mm-hmm. because there's not new things to say all the time. But mm-hmm. yeah. And often it's it's you know waiting and waiting for, you know, things to be published, new information to to come out. But yeah. This makes me want to follow up on how much has changed in the world of sport, perhaps, uh, with uh, abuse and harassment in sport, because that was a, a similar scandal a year ago, mm. and I haven't heard about it recently. But maybe that means changes have been implemented and things are better. Well, think better. We've got a female head of the National Football Association, mm-hmm. for example, and hopefully more. Yeah, but what I found interesting, when she started uh, in her position, uh, immediately I saw... Uh, you know, just a lot of misogynistic messages online, uh, which I found I found very very bizarre. You know, we have this woman, and she 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 just she had just taken over the position. You know, everything was just had crumbled mm. after the big uh, scandal, and it's almost like people didn't even give give her a chance to start to start her work immediately. She had. A great deal of of harassment, and that <laughs> that kind of made me quite sad because you know, like you, I was hoping, oh, maybe this is the the time for change. And then <laughs> a woman takes over, and they're like, well, what are you going to do about it? and pushing her and pushing her on on issues that weren't uh, maybe her fault? Disappointingly predictable, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time's rattling away. We've probably got time to cover just one more topic. Mm. Um, anything? 
particular that you'd like to? Oh, well, it, it's been quite uh, a lot of excitement on the streets of Reykjavik with uh, the film is. crew. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, the filming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah film mm. crew from Hollywood. They're doing a Netflix uh, film starring uh, the Northern uh, Irish actor Jamie Dornan and the Israeli actress uh, Gal Gadot. And uh, I've been seeing a lot of videos, uh, specifically on Twitter and Facebook, of these like high-speed chases on Cybrid going towards Harpa Concert Hall, and then you know cars on fire outside of Harpa. When I first saw this, I I didn't realize straight away that it was a film shoot. I was just like, oh my god, there's a car on fire outside of Harpa. What's going on? And then <laughs> I saw the cameraman like running into the shot. I was like, oh okay, so it's this big action sequence. I've been I've been waiting for these things. I just remember how exciting it was before the pandem- pandemic of having all of these like big shot Hollywood actors in Iceland doing like big films everywhere, like in the countryside and in Reykjavik. And now I feel like this is, you know, it's the start of that again. The pandemic is is uh, sort of uh, leaving us, although we are still dealing with it. Um, but now we have these big Hollywood uh, production companies coming in and hopefully putting some money into our economy. Mm. This one, I think it's called Heart of Stone, isn't it? Heart of Stone, yeah. yes. And it's... The production company, one of the main production companies involved is True North, which is Icelandic. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's not always about Hollywood companies wanting to come here. It's about Icelandic companies going to Hollywood and saying, why don't you come here? Mm-hmm. And that seems to be finally working. Yeah. And it's great to see. I mean, we've had so much uh, exposure in the last, uh, maybe the last 10 years in Hollywood films. And I think it's definitely thanks to True North of making Iceland sort of this hot spot for mm. for film crews. And it's quite, <laughs> it, it's such a Icelandic, uh, like how would you like small, small <laughs> like when you're this like small Icelander, you, you become quite proud of seeing your country like on the big screen. It's understandable. Uh, yeah. I mean, you kind of get used to it, but you mm. still have that strange sense of pride, like seeing you're like, oh, look at us. We're on the map. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it, but if you're not from L.A., New York, London, Paris, we all feel like that. People that are not from the places that are always on the big screen. Mm-hmm. I think it's yeah, it's great. And then you've got, of course, RVK Studios as well. And this huge development at Gouverness. Oh, amazing. That's quite exciting, it having is. like this massive uh, film studio. It's going to be like two now, right? Like two yeah, they've got ones. one open already. Yeah. And they've just built or bought the building next door, which is yeah. just as huge. Uh, oh, gosh. I hope we see more boom in the film industry in Iceland because we have so many talented artists in Iceland and production mm. companies. Same with um, like video game development. There's been a lot of boom in, in, in video game development in Iceland. Uh, and also like... Um, uh, in in like uh, online sports, uh, uh, like uh, gaming in the gaming industry, I think that's quite exciting to to see more of in the future. We've had a few like world championship gaming events. Oh yeah, we had that um, massive one. Um, was it in Copavogur or Karlabær? There was like this massive yeah gaming. Uh, there's one at Lögardalur. Oh yeah, that's right. It was in Lögardalur. Mm. He had these like massive like gaming superstars from from like South Korea and Japan I mean they have their like own uh, cheerleaders and and massive 
fan base that, you know, I, I didn't realize that you had these like gaming superstars. No, that's right. And there's millions that watch and the, the prize money runs into hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more. It's, it's huge. It's mm. I feel like the gaming industry, I, I, I think this is correct. It's becoming bigger than football and the music industry combined. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, that's huge. It is. So good to be in there. Yeah. <laughs> good to have a little have a little part in that. Great. Okay. Uh, on that note, on that positive note, um, I think we've run out of time. Oh. But the Week in Iceland will be back with you next Monday, the 11th of April on roof.is forward slash English, Roof English on Facebook through the Roof app and your f- preferred podcast platform. I need to change how I've written that. I always stumble on it. <laughs> <laughs> that just leads me to thank my guest today, Inkun Laura Christiansdottir. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. And also Lydia Gretasdottir for running the studio. We finish today's programme on a celebratory note as Fjöldbrautaskóli Söðurlands won the National School's Song Competition, Kusk has won the prestigious Musiktil Reynir competition, and perhaps even more impressively, Icelandic soprano Dísela Laurusdóttir won a Grammy alongside her colleagues on the Philip Glass opera Aknatan. Uh, that was recorded at the Met in New York. This particular performance by Dísela is not from that opera, but is rather from the Bellini opera The Capulets and the Montagues. This is O Quante Volte. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.